Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter Mussett, and we are doing um, a old-school remote podcast. We have not done a remoter in a long time, bro. We haven't done a remote since the spring, I believe. Yeah, I mean, but we used to do this, like, all the time when we didn't have any reruns. You know what? This is the key. is When you don't have a rerun, yeah. Because we we can, like, do reruns rather than have, like, because we were like, we've got to to have a post yeah well this is this is our anniversary though isn't it didn't we do oh my goodness gracious on on, uh the first sunday of advent i think you're right i totally forgot about that i think that this is i think this is a completion of another i think this is our third is this year nine it would be eight i think but i could be maybe nine oh shucks i didn't come prepared for this at all because we either started (laughs) We started year we started year B or C. We didn't start A. I think we started B, which tells me that this would be nine. Wow. That's crazy. Nine, nine times. times. I can't believe that. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I didn't get you anything. Um, I didn't get you anything. <laughs> um you know what what is this? It. Our paper anniversary is or this paper copper or diamond or something? I'm gonna say copper. Well, you guys, this is the first Sunday of Advent. You're B. We are uh, hey, very happy to have you here with us can, to get today. Can I give a quick shout out first before we before oh, yeah. we dive and, in? Uh, and also, um, next uh, Tuesday is Giving Tuesday. We're going to have a live lanky guys from the basement. Live lanky Tuesday times going to be great. Um, yeah, I have a quick shout out though to uh, on behalf of our friend Bob Burns up in Minneapolis, uh, up in Minnesota who is um, studying to be a permanent deacon, which is awesome. So he's a friend of mine from college. And uh, he wants a shout out to Chris Richards, who is a diaconate candidate for St. Paul, Minneapolis. Um, they both are, Bob and uh, and Chris Richards. So here's a shout out to those guys. Thank you for your gift of service to the church, um, which is what Bob diaconos literally means, servant. So t- yeah, tune in, tune in Giving Tuesday. Shout out to all the deacons. Um, yeah. Yay, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, yay, all of it, man. Happy New Year. Happy by the time, well, not by the time you listen to it, but for the the, the readings we are talking about are technically liturgical New Year, right? Yeah, yeah And absolutely. if you study these readings, as we did and we will talk about, you will see that uh, the church celebrates New Year's a little bit differently than the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> these are not the exactly the pop the champagne readings. Um, I mean, you might expect from a New Year's celebration. But I mean, that's all right. it d- depend, depends on how you feel about some It depends stuff. on so, which year it is. Yep. Our first reading is from Surprise. Ah, uh, yes. I, Isaiah. I didn't even chapter, question it. I was so. <laughs> yeah. Chapter 63, verses 16b to 17, mm-hmm. 19b to 64 to 7. That's a lot. That's choppy. Yeah. That's, um, that, you know what that is? Is, Piecemeal. is if, if you were um, enjoying some wakeboarding, like ah. behind a uh, behind a, uh, okay. a, a a vehicle that has a propeller on it, yeah. a boat, um, <laughs> <laughs> those are called boats. And this is like if you hit like the top mm. of the the thing because you're going so fast. That's what the, that's what this is like. That's a good metaphor. My image was uh, an old record that kept skipping over a couple of lines at a time and jumping the. Oh, yeah, that's what this reading. 
Yeah. Either one. Okay. Those are both good analogies. Our responsorial psalm is from Psalm 80, verses 2 to 3, 15 through 16, and 18 through 19, with a response coming from 4. 4. And then our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Yep. And our gospel is coming from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. Be watchful. Be alert. <sighs> this is the last thing Jesus says. This is the last word that's meant to be ringing in someone's head as we enter into the passion narrative of Jesus. So it's very significant. Which is, Which is like totally how we celebrate this in a real different way. Well, than, yeah, it, but um, it, in, in all seriousness, it does tell you something about how the church the church's expectation for how we view the new liturgical year and what that actually means and looks like and what a new, what we're preparing for in a, in a new year, which is again, very, very different. It's, it's kind of funny in the absurdity of the juxtaposition of it, but the, uh, the, the real difference between the secular version of how you begin things and the ecclesial version of how you begin things is really striking. Very. So pop the champagne, baby. Um, so, so Isaiah 63, here's what I, here's what ought to be said about this. This is toward the very end of the book of Isaiah. And we've talked, I'm sure at nauseum in the past about the two kind of major division. There's, you can divide up Isaiah, there are two or three ways, but, but in the, the biggest kind of macro sense, there's the section of the bad news and the section about the good news, right? All the punishment that's going to come because of sin and idolatry and turning away from God and breaking the commandments and everything. And then around chapter 40, everything transitions to the book of comfort and the book of consolation and looking forward to the day that God's going to restore everything. And so where we sit here, and this is, this goes to kind of our original point about the new year thing. Where this sits in the reading, so again, we're almost at the very end of the book, and in this little kind of chunk, there's been um, these statements about the vindication of Israel and how God is going to save us and redeem us, but then chapter 63 is kind of this this moment after the vindication that already points toward forward toward after God has vindicated us, set Israel free, began to restore her. And this is a lament that flows kind of smack in the middle of it, where Israel basically is saying, uh, okay, we've been vindicated, but it sure doesn't feel like vindication. We sure don't feel vindicated. We know that you've showed up. We trust you, but but where are you? You supposedly saved us. You supposedly vindicated us. You supposedly came and are restoring us, but we don't feel it. We don't see it. It doesn't look like it, which I think even that little... Um, paradigm is a great insight into the way the church is taking us into the liturgical year in general, but in this particular moment, this particular year, this particular kind of moment in salvation history, I think it's really resonant that we, you know, how does the church think about the new year, about something new beginning and new birth and new life and preparation for Christmas and wreaths and candy canes by looking at the cross, by looking at lamentation, by looking at people crying out to a God who they know or they trust has saved them, but they can't see the evidence of, which is such um, an honest thing for the church to do. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I uh, I think about this because narrative uh, a, a nar narrative drive is absolutely the most critical. Mm. Yeah, um, but narrative drive it, it, you're always trying to set the you're trying to set the stage for what the what where are we going? I mean, like that's the that's the whole thing about the liturgical year is we just celebrated Christ the King, and and Christ the King is this experience. 
of we've been pointing towards that when everything is all in all in God. And, uh, and so, so at the beginning of the liturgical year, of course, we're going to be a people crying out. We're going to say, gosh, we really actually have a need for things to become okay again. And, and so we're going to cry out. And the, the very first thing is, is to say like, God, where, where are you? We need comfort. Like tear the heavens, come, come down. Like, like the, we, we are, we are trying to understand the world is obscure and difficult. And so, so I actually really like the narrative drive that yeah. this is presenting to say like, okay, we're going to set the stage here. Yeah. We are actually going towards something. We're on a journey to something and, and things are not the way that they should be. It's also just simply the experience of Israel. This is, and I, I was about to say this is the Christian experience, which is which is true, because we, of course, in between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming, we live in the already but not yet. We have already been redeemed, but not yet fully experienced the fullness of that. And I wanted to say that's just the Christian experience. But it's not just the Christian experience. It's the experience of all of Israel, which is what Isaiah is pointing toward, is that this is simply how God has worked with his people from the beginning, that there are just long moments of waiting. And this is another time of, of us seeing that God always has the long game in mind. And we want, this is, I don't know, I know people have very strong feelings about this, and I'm not trying to get into a thing, Father Peter, but there's this whole, I don't know what it's like in your neighborhood, but there's this thing going on where everybody's super into putting up all the Christmas decorations way before Thanksgiving because we're all in a bad mood because it's been a bad year. And so we think if we put all the Christmas stuff up, you know, a week before Thanksgiving, then it's going to fix it all. And I'm really annoyed by it because it's just, we can wait. We can, we can be patient a little bit. And even when times are hard, we can all the more reason that we can be patient and wait a little bit longer to celebrate these things. And I just always have this sense that we're just going to be so, if we're already celebrating Christmas right after Halloween, we're going to be so tired of Christmas once the Christmas season actually begins. And these readings are pointing toward the opposite of that mindset of saying, let it be hard for a little bit. Re recognize how difficult this is to long for something that is not yet. And feel the weight of that and feel the, the weight of not even quite knowing when it's going to show up. I mean, the, the beauty of this first reading is that it, it's speaking in such, if you have the eyes to see it, I mean, it speaks so clearly about not only the incarnation, but the passion that it's pointing towards. So, I mean, when this reading is talking about, you know, um, Lord, you're our father, our redeemer, um, your name forever. Why do you let us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Like, why have you allowed us to become so messed up? Why have you allowed us to become so sinful? So please come back, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the mountains quaking before you. And those are the two lines that really struck me rending the heavens and coming down rending the heavens or tearing or ripping the heavens the three reference point for that are of course the the baptism scene of Tism jesus of the lord yeah the yeah spirit with, uh, is you know rips op open the heavens and <laughs> i always imagine you got to picture it like like an action movie like a james cameron kind of a thing right where where the heavens like rip open in fire and the dove comes flying through with you know rifles blazing and I don't know. It just, you know, he's this dove is really coming. Dude, out. I I saw I saw a, a, like a 
senator somebody did a beast mode on this senator and it, he was like he's like we're they're trying to redefine when uh everything happened this is the 400th anniversary of the landing of plymouth and and uh, he's he's like we can't redefine that and then they and then they were like beast mode and then they had like like heavy metal and like and like uh and like uh hulk hogan ripping his shirt off and a bear like like climbing and then like a, a monster truck launching through the air and like rifles and and guns Oh, and so as soon as you said yeah. that, it literally, I, I watched that so many times because it just, oh it's like so absurdly aggressive <laughs> and wonderful. <laughs> it's like beast mode. <laughs> yeah, that was what the baptism was like. <laughs> I, I, assume, <laughs> I assume it was like that. <laughs> so, yeah, so you have the baptism scene. And then, of course, you have um, the scene of the crucifixion where the temple veil, right? The curtain that separates the holy of holies, the presence of God from the outer courts of the temple, which, according to Josephus, had the zodiac on it, had the constellations, literally the heavens, when it is ripped apart. Um, and we see clearly, number one, that there is no God in the temple anymore because he's over on Calvary. And we also see that now human beings have access to God in a way that we didn't. And what happens simultaneously? The mountains quake. There's earthquakes. So I just, as we're getting ready for Christmas, as we're celebrating the very, very beginning of Advent, and we're thinking about new birth, and we're looking at a reading that has to do with God come back to us, return to us, it's not a passage that points us toward Bethlehem. It's not a passage that points us at least directly toward the birth of Christ. It's a passage that points us toward the crucifixion. When the temple yeah. veil is rent, when the mountains quake, this is when, I mean, God comes at the incarnation, of course, but then he comes in a different sense as king at this moment. And that's in a certain sense what this passage is pointing us toward. Yeah, I mean, that that, that it's actually cosmological disaster. Right. Like, like yeah, we're, we're yeah. talking about about uh, uh, f like the cosmos no longer being cosmos and order, but something like like saying like what the order that we're experiencing do just doesn't feel right. And in, mm -hmm. and in a certain sense, I actually think that that um, that th there's this sense that somehow we can solve the cosmological problem. That's that's like a twisted environmentalism that, that has like taken place. And, and, and like, I don't know. So I, I just think like, no, like when we, we pay attention to the signs and we try to be good in, environmentally, but the, the, the cosmological signs are beyond us. Uh, Father Adrian came to me the other day and he's, he was like, he was like, did you know that a meteor literally the size of our house almost hit the earth just yesterday and i was like well i did not know that yeah it's crazy yeah and and then he then he was kept watching his um christmas movies he's actually been <laughs> he's been binging christmas movies during our and covid quarantine yeah <laughs> you know exactly which i just feel like that is this is this beautiful window into the experience of exactly what you're talking about right here it's like it's like we want hope we want comfort meanwhile like Asteroids are nearly hitting the Earth. Like, like, like that. The, there's all these things. It, it, it's just a confusing time. But it, it, when it comes down to it, though, there's this existential need for God to intervene. Yes, and all, but, but, but there's also the sense that. Um, how did you just say it? We we want peace. We want the Hallmark Channel movies. And, you know, we do want that sense and we want God to kind of fix it. We want resolution but, of the narrative is really what we're looking at. But what we didn't see coming, what no, what humanity didn't see coming was that the disaster 
was the means through which God was going to restore and make things right. It is that earthquake and the rending of the heavens and the dying, the taking on of all of humanity and all of creation itself on the cross and the destruction of Jesus that brings about the restoration. It's not that, oh, there's all these disasters and all these chaos and all this crisis and we're waiting for God to come and reconcile it. It's that he's going to take on the chaos and through the chaos, the reconciliation is going to come. It's through the earthquake. It's through the rending of the of the veil and the heavens and everything else. And all we want is the, the quiet, peaceful manger with some oxen and some cattle sitting around. And he's like, no, that's good. That's that's true. And this, there's a beauty to the incarnation. But I came incarnate so that I could do this, so that I could go and set all of creation right. It's the, yep. it's the both and. You know what I'm saying? Yep. We can't have the peaceful Harmark movies without the... Uh, the obliteration of Jesus on the cross. Well, yeah, this is why I like sometimes I'm I don't feel like I'm a good writer because like the 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 um great characters that I have in my mind that I like write down, I, I just have the hardest time putting them into a terrible situation because because the, the or, or even being willing to see the my the characters that I've invented have flaws so that they have this transformation. Mm. Um but uh, let's let's move on. That's a, no, that's a that's an important insight, though. Um, yeah, because that is sort of the key to to good narrative is allowing. I mean, this <laughs> we both know Michael O'Brien, and in recent years, some of his books. I mean, the the depths to which he allows his characters to go to oh. suffer, like holy cow, holy kimchi burger. But there is a I mean, there's something beautiful in what you're saying of of like, wow, it's really hard even to allow these characters that have created even just in my mind to go into the reality, the eschatological reality of what makes a Christian a Christian in a certain sense. Yeah, I'm gonna. I need to sit with that. There's a beauty to what you just said, but we got to keep yeah. going. So then the response is, "Oh God, restore us! Light up your face, and we shall be saved." That was that's actually the the, the new American Bible revised edition. Oh no, edition. it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, light up your on. face, dude. And I'm like, I'm light like, up your face. Well, 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 just, well. Okay, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Do not, don't give the benefit of the doubt. I'm to thinking. That I'm thinking the transfiguration. He lights up his face, right? <laughs> and he allows himself to be seen. There is some precedent. For you're you're that. a generous and good person. There's some precedent. There's some precedent. Um, Versus let your face shine that we may be saved. Yeah, that's a little bit. <laughs> that seems a little <laughs> bit clearer to me, but yeah, that's ESV. Yeah, yeah, yeah th- dude, light up your face, man. Light it so, up. So, Lord, light up your face. Light it up. <laughs> light up your face. That's the. I think that might be the title of the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> this. Uh, I, I I don't have a, a whole lot to say. W- one thing I just want to point out about this passage that I find fascinating or this this uh, psalm sorry psalm 80 there's a couple reference points that we actually don't get in what shows up in the liturgy this week but um there's reason to believe that so this is it's a prayer it's a prayer on behalf of Israel for restoration once they've gotten beat up um but there's reason to believe in the text that this psalm actually goes back to the um the first attack of Assyria before Israel kind of is destroyed. It's back in when the Assyrian empire um, comes and destroys the Northern kingdom, because there's references to Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin and all these tribes that, you know, by the time you get to, uh, by the time you get to later on, they're, they're all kind of gone. So it's, it's, it's a pretty old, very ancient Psalm. And it's put 
um, the title that's given in our Bible is, is it's a Psalm of Asaph and Asaph was considered to be one of the, um, the main Levitical choir leaders of David's choir. Um, so it's, it's a very musical, it's very historical, it's very particular moment in salvation history where we cry out about, why, why do I bring all that up? The reason I bring it up is because it then says it adds some more information to what the first reading gave us, which is not just a restoration of, of um, us, the chosen people who are beat up, but a restoration of all that was. Because it goes back to the time that the 12 tribes of Israel, or at least 10 of them, were destroyed by Assyria, were cast off, were obliterated, were sent to the four winds, were intermarried with other nations, were literally destroyed. And it isn't just the Jewish people saying, hey, restore us, give us our land back, give us our kingdom back. But it's saying, no, go back to the beginning, to the way that things were always supposed to be from day one, in a certain sense. And so it points forward to a scattering of the nations, or the tribes rather, throughout all of the nations of the earth, which is ultimately what God is going to do when he comes and rebuilds Israel. He's going to drag everybody else with uh, them. And there was a line in the first reading that I, I meant to mention, I just forgot, but he actually says this, the, the Isaiah says, we've all become like unclean people. I don't know if you caught that line. And the reason yeah. that stuck out to me is that you could translate that in, di- in different ways, but really it says we've all become like the goyim. Um, in other words, we've all become like Gentiles. We've all become like people who've been cut off from the family, which is significant then that you have a psalm that points toward not just a restoration of Israel, but a restoration of Israel that has to, by its very nature, bring all of the nations back with it because that's where Israel has gone and that's what Israel has become. And so when the first reading laments that we've become like the Gentiles, the responsorial psalm then points toward well, maybe there's something to that. And maybe there's an import to the fact that we've experienced that because it points toward what God is going to do and the way he's going to do it. And we talk, you, you brought it up in the first reading, right? That the idea that God is going to not just make everything better and make us all like a Hallmark movie, but he's going to restore all of creation eschatologically, everyone and everything is going to be caught up in this vision, which is why the heavens are being rent, why there's earthquakes being mentioned, because it's not enough for God to just, you know, this kind of very American Christian version of God is just going to save me and my soul and I will be with him and I'll have my little personal relationship. But all of creation is caught up in this act of restoration or this act of rebirth that all of creation, all of us are going through, which gives this interpretive key to why the world just seems worse from one day to the next and why there's more disaster and more anger and more everything from one day to uh, the next. If we recognize that we're living in the eschatological moment where God is bringing to birth the new creation and the new heavens of the new earth. And the closer we get to that moment that he comes again, the worse in a certain sense, everything's going to be because that's how birth works. That's how labor works. That's the, the, Uh, birth pangs that Jesus talks about. That's not leading to destruction. It's actually leading to new birth. But every new birth that comes about brings labor pains with it. And all of these readings are, I mean, this is what, this is why the church's understanding of New Year's is so messed up from a secular worldly point of view, because it's saying, yeah, now we're entering into the tribulation, which if you see New Year's in terms of new birth, new life, and anyone who's ever given birth to someone knows, yeah, that brings a lot of hardship and a whole lot of pain so that new life can be wrought in the world. 
And the church says, now you get it. That's the whole eschatological vision that Jesus is taking us through. Which I guess takes us to the second reading. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, the, I, I really encourage everybody to read the inter the whole Psalm eighty. Like on, mm, honestly, yeah. I feel I feel I feel like the the lines that they took out for Psalm eighty actually describe what you're saying way better than it's the limited. Other ones. What we get is so limiting, but yeah, the whole picture is like oh, it it, it gives it, it makes it a lot more concrete. Yeah. Um, yeah. in and, and then what, though it's funny though is that is that we get the like okay the beginning of first Corinthians yep. it, it's kind of honestly in its full context is a little is a lot more snarky and it's it's a setup for in a way like like if you take this out of context and put us in grace to peace and I give thanks that you because God has given you all this great stuff and you were enriched to him in speech and knowledge and and then so that you're not lacking in any gift is your wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus like like taken out of context you're like wow that's good i mean because it's actually real buttering up but like he's buttering up the the corinthians to be like you guys are self-inflated and you guys are you're not actually doing it the way that it we're we're we're, we should be doing it by the way yeah and and out like you said out of context which it feels like we're being given it out of context I, i don't think we are i mean in a certain sense we are if you just kind of go to mass and you just hear it um, it, it almost, it, it sounds like there's a buttering up. But it also just sounds like kind of just pious platitudes and like, oh, you know, there's grace and there's knowledge and faith and spiritual gifts. And it's just like, oh, it's niceties. But like you're yeah. saying, if you know the context, um, this is the one I struggled most with to kind of fit in the schema of all these things. And the only thing I can get to is as to why in her wisdom, the church puts this reading in here is um, a specific of what you just said in the context. So yeah, Paul, in a certain sense, in a certain sense, he's buttering up the Corinthians to tear them down, which he's going to do because that's how you give criticism, right? You give compliments and then criticism. But but <laughs> the thing that Paul does, which I find fascinating and, and sort of brilliant, but in a weird way, um, this is the Thanksgiving section. And you know it's the Thanksgiving section because he's giving thanks. And whenever you get – so this is Thanksgiving week, so this is appropriate, right? But the Thanksgiving yeah. section of a letter, Paul's letters especially, always gives you basically the table of contents. It's like an index of all of the key ideas that he's going to talk about. And so if you go through this carefully, you get all of the key terms and the key ideas. Again, not just that he's going to talk about, that, but that he's going to – point toward deficits in the Corinthian people. So what is he giving thanks for? For the grace of God bestowed in Jesus Christ, yes. Um, That in him they were enriched with all discourse, speech, and knowledge. Speech, knowledge, and gifts are three of the most key ideas in this book because the Corinthians' problem being um, steeped in this huge, powerful, important city in the Greek Empire, literally up the road from... One of the, without going too deeply into the history of this place, one of the, the problems that Corinth has is that um, it's a lot of people from a lot of sordid backgrounds and kind of uh, it's it's a it's an upstart city that was a port city that became very, very wealthy, very, very fast. It was a place where former slaves were known as to could come and start a new life. So there were people from really sketchy backgrounds. It was a port city where a lot of illicit immoral things happened but they're really really big on themselves and they're constantly trying to compare themselves to their neighbors the athenians up the street who have like plato and socrates yeah uh, athens and so what paul is going to say is you guys think that you're so you have this beautiful speech and this beautiful wisdom and you're these great philosophers when in fact you're not 
I know the truth about you and their vision of speech and wisdom and knowledge and philosophy and the ways in which they're trying to build themselves up are building themselves up in the eyes of the world. And if they want to really tap into the spiritual gifts that they've received, the real grace of Jesus Christ, then they need to know that the cross of Jesus, the eschatological way of looking at the world that the church gives us is foolishness in the eyes of their neighbors, is foolishness in the eyes of the speech and the knowledge and the wisdom and the philosophical um, frameworks that the world gives them. So if you want real knowledge, if you want real wisdom, if you want real truth, then you need to see the church's eschatological vision of the world, which is far, far different than what the world is presenting you and what it seems like the Corinthians want to be seen as having. Because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? This is what Paul says. It is folly to the Greeks and it's foolishness to the Jews. You know, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, and the cross gives you neither, at least in the worldly sense. Because it's a God, a powerful God, who comes to earth and is killed. And rises from the dead, but then doesn't really show anybody except a bunch of, you know backwoods, out-of-work fishermen and people who are not respected by society. He doesn't do things that look fashionable and attractive and powerful. And, you know, it, it's not the dove blazing guns coming through the, you know, it's not the monster truck things on fire vision, you know, that you might think. It's complete foolishness in the eyes of the world. It's the opposite of what you think. And so the only way I think that the second reading actually makes sense in terms of all the other readings is if you see it in the context of what Paul's about to say and what the Corinthians are really struggling with. Does that make sense? Right. So it's the opposite of the big flaming dove coming out of the clouds, guns blazing to destroy everybody. It's the opposite right. of that. It's the dove allowing itself to be destroyed by all of those things. Yeah. Which is foolishness to the eyes of the world. It doesn't make sense. It's not going to win you any friends, is what Paul is saying. It's not going to make you look good or be on the front page of magazines in the eyes of the world. It's not going to give you what you think you want, but it'll give you the only gift that you actually need. Well, and that's, that's ex like, the, the, which is summed up in this line. God is faithful. God is yeah, faithful. Right. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That, right. that, that this is a, this is a hard truth. And like, I, i I keep on struggling with this. And, and I think that there, there is, there's always place, um, for civil discourse, for large movements, for leadership, for governmental movements. Um, and, but I keep on trying to ask myself the, the question as I sit within, um, a, a world that is changing so intensely is to say, what is my participation right now? Because I see the injustices that are taking place and I see the, the, the large scale machinations. And I've been revisiting even some of the conspiracy stuff that I watched over the summer that seemed radical to me, which now seems actually commonplace. And that that's like, I I'm looking at, in a world that I, that I, in a, in a real sense, I'm crying out. I'm like, uh, things are, things are not okay right now. And I, and like, in a, in a very powerful uh, sense and 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 I keep I keep coming back and, and I say like is it okay to do the little thing I mean I think that this is where it's like God is faithful like okay you know what I can do one little thing I can I can participate in my small way 
in in the gifts that God wants to pour out in this time in anticipation of His return, because which I actually think leads us really honestly into the into the gospel. You know, it's like right. okay, be on guard, keep awake, stay awake. You don't know when God is going to come, and you you've been entrusted with something, yeah. and um and and there are these watches. So when is He going to come? When is the crucifixion actually going to happen? That's that's the mysterious part about when we engage this gospel right here is that. It's um, it's simultaneously the, the, this this uh, attention to work, but then it points towards the four periods of the watch in the evening, which is a direct reference to the crucifixion, uh, the passion, death, and uh, uh, of Jesus Christ. It's really it, it's really wild. So you, I, I'm asking myself that question. It's like how do I how do I participate right now in in, in the the things that really need to get done. And, and and that's where it's like God is faithful. Yeah, the uh, the way that Paul defines faithful is um, usually meaning that he's trustworthy. In other words, what he says can be can be trusted, and that's a problem that comes up in a lot of Paul's letters. Is that people say, well, God seemed to promise all these things in the Old Testament. He seemed to call the Israel his chosen people. Like all these things, God said he would do, but. Is he doing them? And Paul's response is always, God can be trusted. Whether it feels like he's going to come through or not, God is faithful. That's what he does. He is to be trusted. And so even when it doesn't feel like it, he's going to come. Israel asked him to come. Isaiah pleaded for him to come, to rend the heavens, to come and be with him. God's faithful. He's going to show up. You can set your watch by it. I don't know if you can set your watch by it. But... um, but well, it depends on what watch of the night. It ah, is. I know. I, I knew there was something there, but I didn't know what. Um, the thing that's cool about the gospel reading, one of the many things that's cool about it, is that um, if you put it in context with what Jesus just did and what he just said, Jesus um, weirdly conflates three different things all kind of at the same time. So um, Mark chapter 13 is what's called the eschatological discourse. So this is how we know we're already in eschatological territory. Eschat- I, I've thrown around the word eschatological. If you don't know what that means, it's simply the, the church's word for talking about the end times or um, n- even that, we hear the word end times and we think of, oh, the end of the world, the apocalypse or something. No, the church means when God finally moves in the world, when all of the things that we've been waiting for come to fruition. That's what the church means by the eschaton. I think we hear eschatological and we think, you know, um, what's the Bruce Willis uh, meteorite movie? Armageddon. Armageddon. We think of Armageddon. Yeah, we just think like disaster, everything's, which is usually part and parcel to it. But the sense of eschatology is not just the end. It's the climax, the time that everything, the veil is lifted and we see reality for what it is. And God shows that he's been faithful from the beginning. This is what eschatology all is. And so in his eschatological discourse in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, which is paralleled in Matthew and in Luke, um, he basically says, he pronounces a curse on the temple. He says, this temple, which as the first reading pointed to, will have the veil ripped apart to show its its void, its non-efficaciousness, that it doesn't actually do anything for us because we've used it as a lucky rabbit's foot or something, or Israel has made it into something that it's not. 
And so Jesus says, this temple has become a den of robbers and thieves. It's become a sign of, of something it's not. And so it will be destroyed. There won't be one stone left upon another on this temple that won't be thrown down. And the disciples, and he says, it's going to be like the moon falling from the sky. It's going to be like the sun turns dark. It's going to be like the stars falling. It's going to be like the world being flipped upside down. And the disciples say to him privately, once they get out of town, hey, when is this going to happen and what should we be looking for? And in answer to that question as to when is the temple going to be destroyed, Jesus says this. He says, be watchful, be alert, be ready, because you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man traveling abroad. He leaves his home in places, uh, his servants in charge, reach with his own work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on watch. Watch, therefore, if you don't know when the master of the house is coming. And then he gives these four watches. He repeats the word watch like six times in a couple verses. So watch, 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 watch. But the reason I find this fascinating is that Jesus just said to his disciples, hey, the temple, the place where God is housed among you is going to be destroyed. And they say, when is it going to happen and what should we be looking for? And then he gives a parable about the return of the master. And parables about the returning master are always parables about Jesus coming into his kingdom and Jesus being given his throne and Jesus showing up and appearing for what he is. So Jesus has just conflated the destruction of the temple with the return of the master. And now, as you pointed out, he's overlaid each of the watches, each of the possible hours that this could happen over the passion narrative that Mark is about to tell you. The evening, midnight, cock crow or in the morning. So the evening is when Jesus is at the Last Supper. Midnight is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Cock crow is when he is at trial and Peter denies him. In the morning is when he's led to the cross. He's anticipated the passion story on these things. And what Mark is trying to get us to see is the destruction of the temple is not simply the destruction of this stone and mortar building. It's the destruction of Jesus. And Jesus's destruction is his coming. It's his revelation. It's his own eschaton where all of history becomes incarnate in him and climaxes where we can see reality for what it is. Everything is assumed upon Jesus, both past disaster, present disaster, future disaster. Jesus foresees 2020. Jesus foresees the pandemic and the political strife and all of the argument, all of the, the overreach of the government, everything. He foresees that as he assumes all of this onto himself at the cross, which is summarized in the words, watch, it's coming and you don't know exactly when it's going to be made clear to you. So don't fall asleep. Don't stop being alert. Don't let your guard down. Don't forget, in other words, who you are. And if you translate this from the limited experience pre-cross of the apostles to the full-bodied experience of the church post-resurrection, it's the words of John Paul II. In my mind, this is what I hear, which is, Christian, be who you are. In other words, don't forget your identity as people who have been assumed into the crucifixion and also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Don't be disturbed when the world feels like it's crashing around you because the world has always been crashing around you. And Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. And he said he would show up. He's going to show up. He took it all on himself. He's being destroyed. He's literally resurrecting all of creation, including yourself. And it's going to hurt. 
until the moment that he appears in his glory at the parousia. And so the la- literally the last word that the church and the scriptures send us into Advent with is the word watch, which the church wants ringing in our ears as we begin to pray, pray and prepare for our remembering of the incarnation. Yeah, that's where I we begin the the narrative, and I mean the 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 deepest struggle that we have. I mean, how many? I think of uh, Stevie Wonder's song um, uh, "Higher Ground." You know, like sleepers just stop sleeping. Like, yeah. like how do you actually become aware, become awake? I, I, I mean, it, this this sense of 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 watching when you have stopped watching when you mm. when you, you're mm. um you you be you've become dozy and, and, and in a certain sense mm. this is actually what what's hard when i when i look at like um i i do like the good feelings that come around christmas um yeah. but but for a couple of weeks as we're as we're living this it's like how do we actually reinvigorate um how do we how do we not just become uh, demanding of a sign or needing of wisdom, but yeah. willing, willingly engaging the suffering to to begin the narrative again and to say, what was the impetus by which I recognized that I had to live differently, yeah. that, that, that I am no longer okay with just being sleepy and dozy and numbed out and checked out, but yeah. rather to say like, no, okay, what am I watching for? Am, am I watching for actual grace am i watching for sanctifying grace am i am i watching what am i watching for am i watching for the activity of god so that i can be responsive in the midst of this or or do i just or do i just want to have good feelings and this is this is this is a, a hard thing because yeah i do want good feelings i actually do want consolation i want to have the consolations of israel right. but if i'm not unwilling to engage in the dynamic of the narrative again to say like no th- things are are, are not Right. And yes, we are in the end times and Jesus Christ's victory is is here. But but I actually am meant to be a participant within this dynamic of salvation. So how do I re up the watch? And and um, and I'll tell you, it's it's not by playing. I uh, I found this dart game on my on my iPhone while I was like quarantining <laughs> with some covids. And and I'm like, and, and there was a certain point in which I was like, dude, playing darts on my phone. It, it's it, this is not actually being watchful. You know what I'm saying? Like at least play like, real darts. Right. Then that, that's actually exactly what I have in my mind. I, and I so I go to Amazon and I'm like, I need to buy a dartboard. And I'm like, you know what? I, it, it's it's things like that where I'm like I'm like, but but then I'm like, but I can't do that while I'm laying here in my bed trying to get over this really heavy cold huh. called COVID. You know, it's like it's like. <laughs> So it, 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 it's just this funny thing. And I think that that's actually where like Advent, it, like the, the process of making gifts for other people is, is about a, a moving away into a, an attentiveness to the need of another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the time in prayer is to be attentive to the needs of God. Like, like, I mean, God isn't needy. We don't, I, I don't, I don't think that or say that, but like, but like, like, but the, the needs of God of, of worship and justice and study and transformation in the, in the engagement of the, the, the dynamics of, uh, of, of revelation. So, 
uh, to put on the podcast and to enjoy and to embrace and and to do these things and to to say like okay yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna cry out I'm gonna read all the full Psalm 80 I'm gonna let the emotional import of that actually go into my soul I'm gonna I'm gonna actually move away from being inflated in my mind of of how great I think that I am and how wonderful I have it and I'm gonna actually enter into the strife of of another into the strife of the world and and to to be an imitator with Christ and to accompany Christ in his crucifixion and his passion who accompanies all of humanity in that way I don't know these are these are things that I think could actually lead to a pretty good um advent but but again it, it just goes it's narrative 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 what is our story who are we as a people what is the purpose and meaning of the world because um it's going to come harder and harder that the utopianism that the, the world wants to uh, present to us and the the uh, progressivism of history wants to present to us of of some sort of ideal of, of the perfection of humanity and the releasing of of all freedom uh, and license into the world rather than uh, uh, freedom and responsibility and 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 so if we don't know who we are then we're gonna get pushed around and we're gonna lose um, a sense of identity in Christ and that that's why Advent's great it's just it's just time to re-engage the narrative okay yep okay the, the world is hard jesus wants to send his son into the midst of all of the i mean god wants to send his son into the midst of all of this and there's this whole process and this teaching that then leads to passion death resurrection and then ultimately ascension back to the father coming back and then the eschatological reality where jesus christ is made all in all in all in all as the king of the ever ting <laughs> <laughs> right uh, yeah. yeah right and th that's so so it's like so yeah these are the little tiny beginnings again where we just cry out as a people yeah. um at, at the beginning so because otherwise the the new equilibrium the answer the revelation it, it just doesn't it doesn't have the import that it needs to unless we cry yeah. unless we cry out from our hearts yeah, and that's the it's what you said this is the story of salvation history this is why Isaiah works because the passage from Isaiah is in the section of Isaiah on comfort and consolation and glory and vindication. But it's a cry of lament in the middle of the section on vindication, which is such a contradiction. But that's exactly, I think, how we should approach Advent, that we remember, oh, God came. He came incarnate. He was humble and he came among us and he walked. And I sure hope he comes again because it hurts. And I know mm. he did this. And knowing that he did that gives me the ability to hope and pray that he will come back. Right. And that's exactly where I think we're supposed to be. But also with, again, what you pointed out from the second reading, God is faithful. That is the lens through which we have to read all of that. I know God did this. I know he became incarnate. I know he saved the world, but I also know I'm not experiencing it in its fullness. I also know he has yet to come back and I want him to come and I want him to come soon. And I know God is faithful. Period. That's this is what I know. And the only way you can know that, as you said, is by tapping into the story, into the narrative, because that's how we enter into what God is doing, because he told us. Absolutely. Ooh, thanks for joining us, friends, yeah. um, and uh, and trying to see what God is doing. He you know, like. Uh, there, there was a line that struck me the other day uh, at the um, uh, when JD Flynn gave a talk at our mm -hmm. ACT. You can check that out on our yeah. 
our uh, YouTube page, um, which you can uh, check out on our YouTube page uh, on uh, Tuesday at 10 a.m. Tuesday, November, Tuesday, November 1st at 10 a.m. Giving um, Tuesday. but he was talking about John Henry Cardinal Newman, St. Saint, Saint, Saint Newman, and he said, yes, Newman says that we should all think that our time is the end of time. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Well, it's, right. you, you always say it. I'm not going to say you say it better than Newman because Newman's a saint, but maybe you will be too. But you and but you, you're just reiterating the church. It's It's, yes, we should always assume that we're living in the last days, and we should simultaneously prepare for there being a thousand more. And yes. that's the, the, the place the church calls us to be. Not just, not merely assuming that it's the end. We should all be ready. We should all watch and prepare for it to be the end, but also be prepared for a thousand more years to settle up. And you, you always, I think, articulate that very well. Yeah. Newman hey, does, thanks. Newman does all right too, but. Hey man, uh, I'm a I'm a crazy slam poet. I, sometimes I, I I used to be a, I used to think that I wanted to be a slam poet. Now I just make poetry, man, and and I just slam it. So hashtag things that Newman never said. <laughs> <laughs> you're the you're the opposite of Newman in that sense. I do, d- dude. Newman. <laughs> no, Newman. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. We'll see you next week. Uh, for the live for the from live. the basement from live the from the basement this is crazy you guys don't even know we're gonna be coming hard from the basement that's like the best you guys haven't even ever seen this place down here it's crazy it's crazy so many things. crazy all right yeah, we'll I'll see s- you then okay bye the word on the hill podcast is a production of the aquinas institute for catholic thought here in beautiful boulder colorado you can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.